Please turn to 1 Samuel as we begin a, a new series this morning. And as you turn there, we'll just echo an invitation to those of you who are new to the church. We'd love to have you uh, come to our newcomer lunch uh, this, this afternoon after, after, this, uh, after this worship service. We're going to take a few minutes to get the, the, the uh, kids out of the gym area and stuff and before we go back into that area. But I uh, would love to have you come and be a part of the newcomer lunch this morning. You don't have to have RSVP'd. We'd love to have you come and be a part of that regardless. And as you are making your way to 1 Samuel, uh, just a reminder, as Mike mentioned, today is uh, the day that we celebrate the Reformation, Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow is the uh, 505th anniversary of the day in which Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Uh, thus ushering in the, the Reformation, re-emphasizing the, the truth that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, a day that we all celebrate by, by passing out candy and uh, symbolizing the sweetness of the gospel, uh, which I know, it's, it's amazing how this, the whole world participates in, in this, uh, this celebration too. No, I mean, we think about the, the emphasis in the Reformation, we think of the five solas and how those are... are Solas that, that we need to continue to emphasize today. We're saved by, according, we, we look to Scripture alone that tells us that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And just as that divided people in the 16th century, it continues to divide people today, and we want to cling to those, those truths. Well, let's, uh, if you're able to, we're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. And so if you're able to, uh, please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head." As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. 
And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she, came, she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. You may be seated. May God be glorified, and may we be encouraged by the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that it would bring comfort to us and uh, this morning, and we, we are uh, very aware of, of the grieving that's taking place. We're aware of joy that is taking place in uh, the homes of some, and, and yet uh, this morning we, we know that some are, have, have just lost uh, fathers, mothers are, are about to lose uh, family members. We, we just think of the... the just the, the shocking loss of our, our dear friend and brother Steve this, this last week. And we uh, trust that you are a good God. And we pray that as we look at your word together this morning, you would encourage us and, and make us more and more mindful of, of you and your desires for our lives. And we pray that as we, we look at, at this, this, this section of your word, First and Second Samuel, that it would be a, a series in which we have a greater understanding of your word and your character and love you more and worship you more as a result. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On Friday, I was talking with Whitney about how the, the sermon prep was going, and she, I said, you know, I, I think the good news is I, I think this, you know, there's some really good stuff that we're going to be talking about in the sermon. I said the, the bad news is it's two sermons. I've got uh, two sermons this morning, and she said, uh, oh, buddy. And so we're... <laughs> Uh, the, 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 more good news for you, uh, there is no extra charge for the second sermon. This is a, a double feature this morning. Uh, so we've got one sermon, then we've got a second sermon. Uh, or, if, or if you prefer to think of it like this, there's a really, really long introduction. And then we'll get to 1 Samuel chapter 1. But, but what I want to do is I want us to, to introduce First and Second Samuel, remind us where we are 
in our, our study of the Old Testament, I know many of you were not here whenever we were going through the Old Testament together last, and so we're going to kind of talk about where we are in that. We're going to introduce First and Second Samuel and talk about this series, The Covenant King, and then we're going to look at First Samuel chapter 1, which is a, a passage we looked at several years ago on a Sanctity of Life Sunday, but we're going to talk about First Samuel chapter 1 and, and the God who gives good gifts. But let's, let's first of all, let's first of all do this, this first sermon and talk about where we have been in the story of God's redemption and an introduction to First and Second Samuel or Samuel. First and Second Samuel was a designation that was added whenever the Hebrew was translated into the, the Greek, uh, the Septuagint, and so it's really just one story. But first of all, where have we been in the story of God's redemption? As I've mentioned before, my goal, if, if the Lord wills and gives me health and, and preserves the unity of his church and doesn't come back first, so with all those caveats, uh, my, my desire would be that during my, my, my pastorate, I would be able to preach through the whole counsel of God, which means going verse by verse in the New Testament and uh, going through the Old Testament kind of in, in large sections, kind of giving an overview of portions of the Old Testament. And we began in uh, 2000, I believe it's 2015, into 2018, looking at the Pentateuch, if you remember that. Some of you were here for this study in the Pentateuch. And, and here's kind of the main idea of the Pentateuch. This is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the main idea, and, and by the way, this is in your notes. You're not going to be able to write all this stuff down. I apologize. We have to kind of keep going. You can kind of go back and listen to this if you need to get it all written down. It's, it's in your handout if you grab one of those. But, but the, the name of the study was Gospel Foundations as we looked at these first five books of the Bible. And we said that in the Pentateuch, God exhorts his people to live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in his promised seed, the Messiah. And at the same time, he promises a kingdom, his kingdom rest to those who passionately love him and demonstrate their, their faith through obedience to his law. In 2015, I was obviously into writing really long sentences, right? Uh, but that's, that's, that's the Pentateuch. And we looked at each of the, the five books of the Pentateuch. And so we looked at Genesis. And in Genesis, we talked about how the Creator God plans to redeem the nation and establish his kingdom through the promised seed. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, there's, there's sin that has entered the world through man's disobedience. And God in his curse also gives a blessing. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, he says to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. And he, that's the, the offspring, the, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head and he and you shall bruise his heel. And so there's this promise of a deliverer who's going to redeem people from the curse. We see that in Genesis. Then in the book of Exodus, we see the saving God. In Exodus, we see the saving God, the saving God who redeems his people to establish them as a kingdom of priests. We see him, remember, deliver the people from Egypt. And there's a picture there of God's salvation. God is a the creator God in Genesis, he's the, the saving God in Exodus. And in Leviticus, he's the holy God, isn't he? The holy God who, who establishes a way to be able to, to dwell with his people. That's what we see in the book of Leviticus. And then in the, in the book of Numbers, we see a, a gracious God, the gracious God who exhorts his wandering people to enter into his promised rest through faith. 
And then in the book of Deuteronomy, we see the glorious God, the glorious God who prepares his people to experience blessing as they live by faith in the land. So the, the, these first five books of the Bible are written and compiled as the people are encamped on the plains of Moab and preparing to enter into the promised land. So they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to go in and conquer the land. And so these first five books of the Bible, God is preparing them to live in this land by faith. There's this coming kingdom. There's a coming king. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, what do we see? We see that the king has not yet arrived, but the king is anticipated. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God tells the people, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, that's, that's the promised land, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So there's this coming kingdom. They're going to go in the land. They're going to live by faith, and, and God is going to choose a king for them. That's the Pentateuch. Then, in 2019 and 2020, we looked at Joshua, Judges, and Ruth before our series in Acts. And the, the, the series theme there was longing for a king in his kingdom. As we're going to be in First and Second Samuel, we'll see the establishment of a monarchy. In Genesis through Deuteronomy, there's the, the promise of a king. And here in these middle books, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, it, it bridges that gap. Here's, here's what takes place in between the promise of a kingdom and the, the establishment of a kingdom. So, for example, in the book of Joshua, what happens? The book of Joshua is about how God keeps all his kingdom promises. In Joshua 23, verse 14, Joshua says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that, listen to this, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So that's the book of Joshua. We see God keeping his kingdom promises, and that gives the people hope that he will continue to keep his kingdom promises. In the book of Judges, what did we see? In the book of Judges, we saw the need for a king. The book of Judges, if you remember, there's this cycle that, that happens over and over again. There's the people sinning, and then God puts them in a position of servitude, and then there's salvation, and then they, they, they sin again, and then there's servitude, and then there's salvation, and then they sin again, and it goes on and on and on. And there's this refrain, especially as you get to the end of the book of Judges, in fact, the very last verse in the book of Judges says this, something that's been said earlier in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no, what, king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's this longing for a king and his kingdom. The book of Ruth also takes place during the time of Judges and talks about the hope of, of hesed, of steadfast love for the hurting. So, this, I, I hope this is helpful I was talking with my care group about this on Friday night. I was like, okay, how, how, how relevant is this? I don't want the first, uh, I don't want uh, sermon part one just to be a lecture. But hopefully you see that this is helpful as we read our Bibles and we come to certain portions of the Scripture. We see, okay, this is how this is pointing me to Jesus Christ. This is where I am in the story of redemption. So first five books of the Bible, there's this, this, there's this promise of a kingdom. And 
in the, the next section of the Old Testament, we see this, this longing for the king, for this promised Messiah, for the one who's going to deliver the people from the curse, the one in whom they're placing their hope. And that's, that's where we are in the story of God's redemption as we come to First and Second Samuel. And in First and Second Samuel, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the covenant king, the covenant king. The, the main idea that I want you to think about in, in this section of Scripture is that we need a king who can enable us to love and obey God from the heart. Because what's going to happen in, in First and Second Samuel is there's going to be a king, there's going to be several kings, two kings, and, and, and the kings are going, one king is not going to have a heart after the Lord. We'll talk about this in a second. The other, heart, the other king will. But even still, even with this king who does have a heart that loves God, it's not the, the ultimate of, of what the people need. The people need a king who can sovereignly reign and enable his people to fully love and obey God, not just outwardly, but from the heart. L- let me talk about that word covenant for just a moment. It's going to be a, a word we return to as we go through the book of Samuel or the books of First and Second Samuel. It's a very important word this word covenant. God's going to make a covenant with David, and we call it the Davidic covenant that helps us understand who Jesus is. And a covenant is a very important word in Scripture. A covenant defines the relationship between two people. Whitney and I started dating in the 90s, the the late 90s, and there was a phrase that was kind of beginning to make its way into popular culture. Uh, DTR, you know, DTR, uh, define the relationship. Uh, Whitney and I, our first official date was to Chisholm Park in Bedford, Texas. We had a, a picnic and threw a Frisbee around and stuff. And I can remember we, we got in the car and we're driving out of Chisholm Park. And I, I asked Whitney, I said, I can say this because she's, she's in nursery today, or twos today. Uh, she may have a different memory. Uh, actually, she has some better stories. Anyway, uh, I said, uh, so, so, uh, what do you th- you want to do this again, or what you know? Uh, and sh- and she said, meh, yeah. <laughs> why not? You know, something like that, I'll, which I took as a good sign, uh, right? So. so you know, we started dating, and and it was a little awkward. You know, starting to date is is a little bit awkward, and and then. We were boyfriend and girlfriend, whatever that means, which is also kind of a, a weird thing in our culture today. And, and, then, uh, and then we had a new phase of a, a defining of our relationship where we were not boyfriend and girlfriend for a couple of months in college. And then we, were, then we got back together. We were boyfriend and girlfriend again. Uh, all that's just kind of a weird thing again in our culture. And then we were engaged, right? Again, just all that, it was kind of, even after we had defined the relationship, there, there wasn't really anything holding us together. I was, I was talking to a couple last night. They're, they're just like 14 days into being boyfriend and girlfriend. And I was, I was talking to them about it, and the young lady said that the, the, uh, the young guy had, had just really drug his feet in making the, the relationship official. And uh, I said, well, you know, and we were talking about how awkward that is. And now it's really awkward because I'm mentioning it on a Sunday morning, poor guy. Uh, but that's the, don't talk to me on a Saturday night, bottom line, if you don't want to be... <laughs> It wasn't until it wasn't until Whitney and I 
stood before our friends and family and God and did what? Entered into a covenant relationship that our our relationship had real permanence and and substance, right? That's what a covenant is. A a covenant defines the relationship. It it helps us understand and and gives, gives commitment to that relationship. We'll be talking more about covenants as we go through the the, the book of Samuel, but, but the, the series is entitled Covenant King, and, and as we enter into a covenant, we're entering into this, this relationship, and we see co- covenants throughout Scripture. We see treaties like between Joshua and the Gibeonites. We saw that in the book of Joshua, or between two individuals like Laban and Jacob in the book of Genesis. Sam Waldron uh, says this. He says, the, the best brief definition of a covenant is that it's a sworn promise, a, a commitment certified by oath. Uh, Gentry and Wellam in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, have this to say. They say at the, the heart of covenant is a relationship between two parties characterized by faithfulness and, and loyalty and love. See, you see, a, a covenant is more than just a contract. I have a contract with my cell phone company, Right? but I have a covenant with my wife. I have a covenant with this church, but I have a contract with my mortgage company. There's no relationship there, right? Covenant means relationship, and God, what we see in Scripture, again, this is something we'll unpack more as we go through the series, but in Scripture, what we see God doing is we see God revealing his plan of redemption through covenants, he, there's a covenant with creation. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with the, the people of Israel, and we call it the Mosaic Covenant. He makes a covenant here in 2 Samuel with David, and all of this culminates in the new covenant, the covenant he makes with us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's talk a little bit about the outline of First and Second Samuel or, or, or Samuel. We're, we're going to kind of see this outline around four people. Uh, the first person is, is Samuel. And in, in the first part of, of Samuel, we see the people desiring a king like the nations. That's what we're going to talk about in the first eight, ver- eight chapters, desiring a king like the nations. God had, had told the people that they would have a king like the nations, but the, the people twist that, we'll see, in 1 Samuel. And instead of, instead of trusting God to give them a king that's, that's in a position like the, the nations have, and instead they're going to want a king who will act like the rest of the nations, and they're not going to trust God to provide that king for them. And ultimately, the way in which they want a king like the nations is a rejection of God. So in the first eight chapters, and even beginning today, we see that God is a God who gives good things, but the, the people don't want the things that God gives them. Then the second person that we'll center our outline around is the person Saul. And in Saul, we see the people getting a king like the nations. That's the rest of First and Second Samuel. And it's not all that it was cracked up to be. Saul is not a king after the Lord's own heart. And we'll talk about 
what the, 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 the difficulty is for the people with having a king like Saul. And then we'll come to the person of David. Now David, of course, appears earlier in 1 Samuel, and we, we see this, this tension between Saul and David. But in David, we see the people getting a king of the covenant. This is the, the king that God makes a covenant with and says, okay, you will never lack a, a son to, to reign over the, the people. He's going to be this, there's going to be this permanence to this, this kingship that ultimately culminates in Christ. And that's the fourth thing we're going to look at. Even David is not the king of the new covenant. He's not the covenant king. He's a picture, a, a type of the covenant king, but he's not the covenant king. And we're going to, as we come to the end of David's life, we're going to talk about Christ and desiring the king of the new covenant. So that's where we're headed. We're going to talk about how they desired a king like the nations, how they got a king like the nations, and then they received, they got a king of the, of the covenant, and then how the people, and, and I think this is what Samuel is trying to help us do, is I think he's, the, the, the book of Samuel is trying to help us do, is help us to, to long for this ultimate king of the covenant. I meant to say this earlier. Again, this is, this is one story. The author is unknown. Tradition ascribes it to Samuel, parts of it, but we know Samuel didn't write all of it because uh, he dies like in 1 Samuel, um, I think, 25. And so obviously he didn't write 2 Samuel or the rest of 1 Samuel. So probably the prophets Nathan and Gad or, or those like them were, were writing and composing. Uh, compiling the rest of it, but it wasn't ultimately compiled until after the division of the kingdom, so Solomon, after Solomon's life. The prophetic author is going to, to write, authors potentially as well, are going to be writing under the divine inspiration of God, and they're going to be using various historical records as well. So, for example, in Second Samuel, uh, someone was talking to me about this this last week. There's the book of Jasher that's mentioned. And so that was a, a poetic collection of Israel's wars. And so there's these historical documents that are being used by uh, the authors as well. And the purpose of this, of this uh, writing is to help the people of Israel rightly grasp the, the purpose and the nature of the monarchy. They're living in a time where the, the kingdom is divided and the, the kings are not good kings. And so the, 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 the prophets, as they compile Samuel, are saying, look, look, he, here's the origin of the monarchy. Here's what God has promised. And the, the coming king is the one to whom we're looking. And there's hope in that. God is the God who gives good things, and he will give good things to his people in the ultimate gift, the King Jesus Christ. That's where we're going as we look at First and Second Samuel. So, with that introduction, uh, let's get to the text, part two of our sermon this morning. And we're going to be talking now about the God who does indeed give good gifts here in First Samuel chapter 1. God, main idea this morning, God gives good things to his people. God gives good things to his people is the main idea that I want you to look at this morning. So four truths that we're going to focus on about the God who gives good gifts. And here's the first thing that I want us to think about in verses 1 through 8. You and I lack good things, some good things. 
Now, some of you are, are getting a little uncomfortable even writing that down. You're saying, hold, hold on, Daniel, what, what, are, what are you saying here? Uh, doesn't God give us everything that we need? And aren't all the things that God gives us for his good and, and, and our, uh, for, uh, our good and his glory? And yes, absolutely, good job being discerning. But hang with me here, and let's see what we're, we're gleaning in these verses and what we mean by good things. If you look at the text with me here in verses 1 through 4, what do you notice? There's this guy named Elkanah. Elkanah is uh, this, this man who lives in this, this city, uh, Ramathame Zophim. Uh, Ramathame means two heights, and so maybe it's this city that was constructed on uh, two hills. And he is a, a man of, of some means. He lives in this, this city. It's in the territory of Benjamin. It's north of Jerusalem. But as it kind of talks about him, he's a, he's a guy of prominence and with a, a pedigree. It, it goes back four different generations. And the last person in, in the, the generations that it mentions is perhaps even the founder of this, this town based upon his name. He's also a, a person of means, we see, because he has two wives. Obviously, this is a, a person who had the financial wherewithal to support a large family. And then, we'll talk more about that as we go on, we also see about Elkanah, as you look at verses 3 and 4, that he's pious. He's one who worships God. And verse 3 tells us he used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. We, we sung about the Lord of hosts earlier. This is the first time the phrase Lord of hosts is used in Scripture. And they, he used to worship the Lord of hosts in, in Shiloh. That's where the the tabernacle and the, the Ark of the Covenant are. And so he's going once a year. We're not exactly sure why what occasion he's going. Maybe it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe it's just a, a localized celebration. But every year he takes his family some journey of 15 miles and, and they go and they worship the Lord. He has one of his wives, though, who has a heartache, doesn't she? She lacks uh, something good. Verse 5 tells us he, to his wife Hannah, he gave a, a double portion because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. The lack of something good here is, is a child. Now, let's, let's think about this, this idea of, of good things. What, what do I mean by good? When I use the... the uh, I mean colors, lots and lots of colors. Um, when I use the, the phrase good, what I mean by that is, is something that you and I enjoy that brings God glory, okay? So something that's good is, is something that we can enjoy that brings God glory. So, for example, uh, you say, well, you know, don't sometimes evil things, aren't, doesn't God use them for our good ultimately? And yeah, of course he does, but that's not the sense in which I'm using the word good here. And it's also true that sometimes some, some good things that God might provide us, we use in bad ways and we don't glorify God with them, okay? And so, yeah, we're not doing a full theology of all the things that God gives us this morning, but when I use the phrase good things, I'm talking about a thing that we would enjoy that would bring God glory. And here, Hannah lacks something good that would bring God 
glory, and that's a child. A Psalm 67, I think, is a, you can turn there if you want. A Psalm 67, I think, is a great psalm to think about the good things that God gives us. In Psalm 67, the, the psalmist says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So we want blessing, and he's talking here about the blessing of a, of a harvest, of, 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 of physical things that God would provide. And then in verse 2, the psalmist says why he wants these things, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then, verse 6, the psalmist tells us that these, these good things that he wanted from the Lord have been provided, these, these physical blessings. And it says, the Lord, has, uh, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And then what's the end? Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So there's these, these good things, these, 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 these physical things that God provides, and they're things that are enjoyed, and they're things that are enjoyed and used to bless the Lord. As you look at chapter 1 here, and you see the, the, the worship of God, you see that worship of God entails eating the, the sacrifices that the people are offering to God. It's not just like you, sometimes they would just give a, an animal to the Lord and it will all be burned up, but oftentimes as you give the animal to the Lord, the, the priests take some and then you and your family sit and you enjoy the thing that you've offered to the Lord. It's the good things that God gives us are, are to be enjoyed and used to glorify him. Now, as we think about this idea, though, we lack good things, the other thing I think what you notice in verse 5 is there are some good things that God doesn't give. In other words, God doesn't give us every good thing we could possibly have. And we know this experientially, right? God sometimes withholds good things from his people, things that we would enjoy, things that we might use to glorify God. And all of us, maybe this morning, could think of some examples of good things that we don't have, that we lack. Another thing I want you to notice in verse 5, and we talked about this extensively some years ago, but I just want to reemphasize it because our, our culture doesn't always believe it. Uh, children are good things. Oftentimes, children are viewed as, as uh, burdens. Uh, children are viewed as not a blessing of the Lord, but children are good things. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're hard too, right? But they're blessings. Look at Hannah's heartache in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 and 7, we, we see Peninnah and the, the misery that she calls, causes Hannah. Sometimes critics of Christianity will say, well, look, you know, the, the, the Bible condones polygamy. And you say one woman and one man, but look at the polygamy in, in the Bible. I don't know of a single instance in Scripture where polygamy is, is presented favorably. There's always heartache that accompanies it. And as you see Peninnah here, the temptation might be to portray her as a villain, but, but perhaps her vexation of Hannah is also coming from a, a, a place of personal pain and loss. Perhaps she was the, the second wife and she, she senses, man, I, I was added to this relationship simply because Hannah wasn't able to provide children. And so maybe there's, there, there's heartache that's causing her to, to, it doesn't excuse it, but maybe there's some, 
some pain that's causing her to lash out as well. But for whatever the, the reason, she causes her, and that we're rivals in our interesting word, isn't it as well? She causes her rival pain. And you can imagine year after year, the things that, that Peninnah would say in Hannah's presence to remind her that God had blessed her with children and not Hannah. Verse 8, Elkanah uses a phrase here. He says, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? The, the phrase in Hebrew is, Chana lame tivki. I know that phrase well because I was, I was studying Hebrew whenever our daughter Hannah was born. And I was listening to this, this verse over and over again while I was holding this, this screaming infant. Hannah, why do you weep? For what are you weeping? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? You know, I was saying that over and over again to her. And then the, the fourth question Elkanah says is, uh, hey, am I not better to you than ten sons? Uh, to which my dad would read this, he would always say, to which Hannah replied, no. <laughs> here's, here's the application I want us to make from this, this first truth, we like good things. It's not wrong for you to acknowledge when you lack something good. That doesn't impugn God's character for you to lament lack. Maybe your lack is, is health. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's a family. Maybe you want children. Maybe it's a lack of finances. It's not wrong to, to say, look, there's this good thing that I would want to use to glorify God that I don't have right now. And that's an okay thing to acknowledge before the Lord. We're going to talk about lament in a few weeks. And it's an okay thing to say and, 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 to, and to wrestle with. The question is, what do you do with that acknowledgement? And that brings us to the, the second truth about good things. Number two, we ask God for the good things that we lack. We ask God for the good things that we lack. We're introduced to, to Eli again, and, and he's sitting in this, this place of honor. Look at verse 9. It says that he's sitting in the the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and, and Hannah is deeply distressed, and she responds in her, in, her, in her distress the exact way that you want a person to do so as they, they recognize their need. It says that she prayed to the Lord, and, and she wept bitterly. And, and as she, she does so, she vows a vow. Now, I, I don't believe that this is about bargaining with the Lord it's not saying, look, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. So you need to do this so that I'll do this. That's not what she's doing, I don't believe. I think instead she's saying, look, Lord, this is what I desire. And when you give me what I grant, when you grant me what I desire, here's my plan to worship you with it. This, this is why I want this good thing which is really why we should want any good thing, right? Why we should want children and not, not to 
bless our idolatrous desires to have our, our children love just us, but we, we desire to, to have children to use them as, as instruments to bring God glory. God, here's why I want a good job. I, I want a good job so that I can use this to proclaim your name. God, here is, is why I, I want to have a, a family that's at peace with itself. It's, it's so that we can glorify your name in, in this world. So what, I believe that God has brought Hannah to a point through her pain where she recognizes her lack, and what she's saying is, look, Lord, this is how I'm going to worship you with this gift if you grant it. And she describes here a, a Nazarite vow. I'm going to dedicate my, my son to worship of you. Here's, here's why I desire this. Here's, here's how I see children bringing glory to you. Eli sees her engaging in prayer before the Lord, and he, he observes her mouth, and she's, she's so deeply moved that only her, her lips are moving and her voice can't even be heard. And Eli thinks, well, man, now we've got a drunk woman here. Again, remember this, this, this worship of God involved eating and, and, and uh, engaging in, in, in joyful uh, celebration together. And sometimes, apparently, there was, there was excess that was done, taking a good thing and doing something bad with it. And Eli reproves her. How long, verse 14, will you go on being drunk, put your wine away from you? And Hannah says, no, 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 you misunderstood. I'm, I'm not a drunk woman. I'm a woman who is troubled in spirit. I haven't drunk wine, I haven't drunk strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's that beautiful phrase there. And that, that same word, soul, is the word that was used earlier to describe bitterness and spirit. I'm, I'm, I'm sad in my soul. I'm, I'm, I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. And, and don't regard me. Don't look at me as someone worthless. All I'm doing is speaking out of my great vexation. This is the deepness of my desire. And as Eli recognizes his mistake, he says very comforting words to Hannah. He says to her, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. This isn't, I don't believe this isn't a guarantee that God is going to do exactly what she asked. But what it is a guarantee of is that God has heard you. God has listened to what you've asked and he's heard it. Is going to give you what's best. And she asks to find favor in his eyes, and she goes on her way. And, and this is very interesting in verse 18, isn't it? Even before the Lord grants her request, as she thinks about the character of God, what does she do? She finds joy. Her face is no longer sad. She eats, perhaps for the first time in, in years at this time of, of worship in Shiloh. Here's the, here's the application that I would give us here from, from, this, from this point. Do you, beloved, do you pour out your heart before the Lord for him to give you good things? As you request, as you look at the lack in your life and you request good things, do you pour out your heart before the Lord? Some of us are such good Calvinists that we're living in complete disobedience to the Lord in this area, right? Well, if God wants me to have something, I guess in his sovereignty, he'll, he'll give it to me. God has not just ordained the end, he has ordained the means by which he grants us good gifts. 
And it's very clear in Scripture, the, the clear teaching of God's Word is that some of us do not have because we have not asked. He says, you, you desire, don't have, in, in James chapter, chapter 4, it says, you don't have because you don't ask, in verse 2. You ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to, to spend it on your passions. In James chapter 5, God says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prays again, and it does rain. Beloved, some of us do not have good things that God would desire us to have to use to worship him, and we lack those things because we're not praying for them. Beloved, pour out your heart to the Lord for good things. You know, we're in that stage of parenting where we've, we've spent 21 years in parenting, um, just sometimes grieving the, the mistakes that we've made at points. And, and some of you some of you are aware of that, right? Like, I mean, not just my personal, I mean, some of you are aware of my mistakes in parenting, but uh, you're also aware, you're, you're, just, you're, you're aware of your own. But now we're entering the, the fun stage where our kids start telling us other things that we failed at at parenting that we did not even know that we failed at at parenting. So that's something new to wrestle with, right? It's good. It's good. God's gracious, and his, his grace covers a multitude of sin and failure and all those things. But we were talking with our, our, uh, our, our oldest daughter when we were down in, in Houston visiting her, and, and she was telling us about some things that as a young girl she had wanted, you know, like a, an outfit, or uh, there was some sort of school thing that everybody did, and, and she didn't do because she didn't want to ask us for for money to do it because she gotten this weird idea that I'm I'm really tight with money, um, and you know as she's as she's telling us these things, our our heart was just like oh uh, man that hurts, it, it hurts because there were some good things I would have loved to have given her, and, and provided for her because that's my 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 joy as a father, but but I didn't because I didn't know about them, she was too kind to ask. And if I'm like that, who, you know, let's be frank, I am a little tight. If, if I feel that way, how much more does our God, who owns all things and loves us with absolute perfection, how much more does he delight to give his children good things? We ask God for good things. And then the third thing that I want us to see, the third truth that I want us to meditate on is, is that this, God generously grants good things to his people. Again, God doesn't give us every good thing that we could possibly use to glorify his name. Obviously, the example of, of children here is very easily applied to many of our situations today. Not, not every godly, childless woman receives a, not every childless woman who is godly receives a child. Not every godly father who uh, asks receives a child. We think, we think of Anna in the book of Luke. There's, there's an indication that she was a widow for a long time and, and never had children, yet she was an extremely godly woman. So we're not saying here that God gives every good thing that we could possibly have to glorify his name, but every good thing that we have does come from the Lord. Verse 19 and 20 here in chapter 1 leave no doubt where this child comes from. In the marriage relationship, Elkanah says, knew Hannah, his wife, and, and Yahweh, the Lord, remembered her. And that's a phrase we'll, we'll talk about more in Samuel. And then verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked 
for him from the Lord. That, that word uh, Samuel, that name Samuel, I think what she's saying here is it's kind of a, it sounds like Shema El, uh, the Lord has heard. Shema means to hear. Uh, El is the Lord. So the, the, the Lord has, has heard. The, the Lord has, has, has taken, my, has, has remembered me, has, has been mindful of me. It's God who generously grants good things to his people. Again, the book of James, what does James tell us? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom in chapter 1, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like, a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then he says what God doesn't give, God doesn't give temptation. In verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, this is, this is a, a verse that we might read over kind of quickly, but that phrase that occurs at the end of verse 17 is so crucial for us to grasp. God is a God who gives every good and perfect gift that we have, and he's the father of lights, and, and there's no variation or shadow due to, to change. God's character, his being, he doesn't change in any way whatsoever. If God changed, he would no longer be God in his divine essence. Every thing that God was, God continues to be. And everything that God is is a God who is a, a God who gives good things. We never need to doubt that God is going to give us all good things in Christ ultimately. Of his own will, he says in verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so as we look to God who gives good things, what do we gain? We gain, first of all, an intellectual understanding of the, the character of God. We see that he's a God who doesn't change. We see that he's a, a God who's the the, the, the father of lights. We see that he's a, a God who is kind. We see that he's a God who's merciful. And so, first of all, just intellectually, I think it's important for us to grasp this. As we, as we think about God being a God who gives good things to his people, what we need to do first is just to step back and to think, okay, what good things has God given me? So oftentimes, we, we go through life, and we talked about this before, but we're, we're sad, we're kind of upset about this, we're d- discouraged about that, and it's okay to, to mourn things, but at the same time, there should accompany that a recognition that God is a God who gives good things. Mark DeJarnett, a few weeks ago, whenever he was praying, read from Psalm 40, verse 5, which, as I've mentioned before, is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. That is, I will proclaim and tell of your good deeds, but they're more than can be told. So we we contemplate the God who gives good things, and we we recognize, okay, uh, maybe... Maybe today I think I've arrived here and I have the ability to sit in this room. I have the ability to have my needs met. I have these good things that allow me to enjoy fellowship. Maybe I have friends or I have shelter. I have a church. I have all these good things. And as I think about these good things that I have, it draws me. They should draw me to 
first of all, intellectually understand who God is, that he is a God who hasn't just like added, but who has multiplied his wondrous deeds and his, his thoughts toward us. And as the psalmist just says that phrase, he, he interjects, none can compare with you. There's no comparison to you. There's no other source from which I get good things besides you. No matter what good thing I look at in my life, no matter what good thing I contemplate coming in my future, none of them have a source in anything other than you. God is the ultimate source of all good things in my life. And so, I, I first of all intellectually understand that. And that brings me to the fourth thing, number, number four, we use what God gives us to worship him. As we gain this, this comprehension of God's character, what must it compel? It must compel worship. In verse 18, Hannah, as she thinks about God's character, as Eli affirms who God is, her sadness disappears before the thing she desires comes about. She trusts in God's provision for her. In verse 19, she worships before she receives the good things from the Lord. And then she receives Samuel. And she uses Samuel as a means by which God is glorified. And the course of a nation is altered by her faithfulness. She delays in giving the child to the Lord until he's weaned, which is an entirely understandable thing to do, right? It's not a, necessarily a gift to Eli. Look, here's this baby. And Elkanah affirms the rightness of her decision. He says, do what, best, what seems best to you. Wait till you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And so that's what takes place. And then, and then she dedicates him to the service of the Lord. How, how do we, here's the application. It says he worshiped the Lord there. Here, here's the application. How do God's good gifts bring him glory? One, they, they provide the resources we need to worship him. The, the resources we need to do ministry, God's gifts provide us. He gives us health, we have the ability to worship him. He gives us finances, we have the ability to provide for others. They also bring worship as we respond with praise. And I was thinking about this, you know, just this week I was driving on Dutch Lane and I see the church building and I think, how is it possible that I get to, to, to serve this church? Or I was looking at my family one Saturday morning and just thought, yeah, why do I have this gift? Or right now on, on uh, early mornings out on country roads, if, when you look up, it's, you know, since the, the daylight's uh, shorter, you can look up and you can see just the, the vastness of the, of the universe, the little glimpse that we can obtain of the universe, and you think, why have you given us this? So we respond with, with praise just as we look at the gifts he gives us, and then we can also respond with praise to the lack of good gifts God gives us with praise. So much more to say here. I'm, I'm out of time. Let's just end with this. God gives good gifts to his people. And the ultimate gift that God gives us is in his son, Jesus Christ, the covenant king. As we come through the book of, of Samuel, we're going to see the, the people not receive this gift of Samuel that God has given them. Then they're going to re reject the gifts that God gives. The ultimate gift, of course, is the covenant king, 
the King who enables us to change, who enables us to walk in obedience. That's the ultimate gift of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this study that we're embarking in. We pray that you would help us to, to grasp the, the nature of your love for us. You would cause us to, to walk in greater obedience. We pray that you would help us to, to respond with worship and praise as we consider your goodness to us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus.